electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now in Last Call, what the Bond King is buying now. Bill Gross joining us where he sees other big opportunities awaiting a verdict. The jury deliberating right now over Sam Bankman-Fried's verdict. Crypto prices acting like FTX's collapse never even happened. Mike Novogratz here to tell you if the rally can hold up. Apple doing something it has not done ever since the iPhone was invented, and we don't mean that in a good way. A dash for trash. Some of the most beaten down stocks suddenly surging. How come? Herb Greenberg joining us with the answers and dialing up the pressure. Top law firm signaling a new threat to colleges over anti-Semitism and getting baked. The famed Magnolia Bakery is still seeing all kinds of green, but this time with edibles. All that much more across the hour. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Well, hi, everybody. Good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. All of that ahead, but first up on last call. Is this, like right now, the start of a big holiday rally for your money? Stocks rallying. The Dow surging 500 points. That's its best day in five months. How about this? The Nasdaq posting its first five-day winning streak in nine weeks. But the big winner was this guy right here. That is the S&P 500 one point, let's call it 1.9, right? We're just going to round up 1.9% gain. That was the S&P 500's best day in six months. And here's a random but interesting stat from our friends at Bespoke. Today is the first time since May 5th, Cinco de Mayo, at the S&P 500, NASDAQ, and yeah, we're going to talk about it. The Russell 2000, the small caps, all rallied on the same day. First time, one, two, three. This has happened since all the way back on May 5th. Gains across the board, but some groups did better than others. In fact, look at this, energy. I know somebody that talks about this once in a while. Energy up 3.1%. Real estate, 8% mortgages, anybody? Anybody care? Real estate's up 3% and consumer discretionary up 2.4%. Now, one big reason why is that bond yields, I know bonds are boring, I get it, but bond yields have been coming down the last few days. In fact, let's take a look at it because remember, we hit five, just for like a second, we hit 5% on the 10-year note about two weeks ago. And it was like, ah, stocks went down. Well, guess what sort of as quietly has happened? We're now at 4.6%. And again, bonds are not stocks. They don't move quickly. To go from five to four, six in two weeks-ish is actually a pretty doggone big move. For the 10-year, we got, a, by the way, a pretty good guy to talk about this in about 30 seconds' time. So 10-year yield on the way down below 4.7%. So there you go. That is one big move as well. But now the question is, where do we go from here? Okay, well, the average price target of Wall Street strategists, and listen, take them with a grain of salt, all right, but the average target price is 43.58. I feel like, who's that 
the Dracula from Sesame Street, Count Chocula or whatever, the count, the count, the guy counts. Four, three, five, eight. All right, right now we're at 4317. I think Count Chocula was a cereal. Anyway, that implies a measly 1% potential upside. So from where we are now to the median Wall Street estimate of 4358 implies a whopping gain of 1%. Now, keep this in mind. Most strategists got the year wrong. Most everybody had their targets lower. This number is because so many of them revised them up. Very, you know, like around May or June, like, oh, we're just going to raise our price target. So now we're at 43.58. All right. So let's now bring in the best voice we know of on rates and markets. It's the Bond King, the man who literally invented modern bond trading, legendary investor and PIMCO co-founder, Bill Gross, now unconstrained to make money wherever he shall. And Bill, explain to our audience why a move from 5% to 4.67%, which you know, most of our audience, not you, obviously, they think, eh, it doesn't seem like that much, but it, it is in a short period of time. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a 2.5% price gain on a 10-year, Brian, and so that's a big deal in a two-week period of time. Um, you know, t- typically bear markets and treasuries uh, can move in that direction, but bull markets um, a little bit more slowly. So it's been impressive. Yeah, who do you think is doing the buying? We talk so much about debts and deficits, the Treasury with that refunding announcement on Wednesday, which kind of, in my view, kind of even maybe overshadowed the Federal Reserve. So much debt, and yet there still seems to be fairly insatiable demand for U.S. bonds. Yeah, well, it's a bet on the Fed and a bet that the Fed will stay where it is and perhaps at some point, 6, 12, 18 months down the road, will begin to lower rates. If they do that, then a 4.66% Treasury is okay. I don't think it's great. Um, my bet on the Treasury market and on the bond market would be on the curve, not on the absolute level of 10-year Treasuries. And that means that, you know, I'd be buying twos at 5.0% and selling tens at 4.66% for a, a positive carry, but also for the potential at some point down the road for two-year yields to be lower than 10-year yields, which is what a a normal, healthy economy requires. That's funny. I knew a guy, a bond trader once, whose giant yacht was actually named the Positive Carry. Sort of appropriate to bring it back up. Uh, Bill, let's, let's, I'm going to get to what you're buying in just a second, but I also want to refer to a tweet you had a couple of days ago about auto sales, and you believe that the U.S. economy is headed in to recession. A lot of people have said that. So far, the data hasn't borne it out. Why are you saying that now? Well, I cited in my tweet uh, that up until today or yesterday, in terms of the regional banks, that they had been devastated, and usually that's indicative of some serious problems in terms of the economy. Um, I also cited uh, delinquencies for automobile uh, loans, uh, you know, almost at record highs, and so that to me indicates that consumers falling behind in terms of their ability to pay, and of course the U.S. economy is. 70% based on consumer spending. So, you know, it's it's a it's a difficult situation. Uh, you know, Powell has uh, talked about the pluses and the minuses, and we'll see. Uh, but I, I think that, um, you know, economic growth, which uh, with the Atlanta Fed is down to about 1.5%, mm-hmm. is, is probably going to move into December now at the zero line or perhaps a little bit lower. It's just so funny sometimes how 
what people see and feel in the economy and the data you just said, and yet the government data doesn't always link up, and I'm not putting on a tinfoil hat or anything, don't worry, but I do know governments change metrics often, Bill. Are you a 100% believer, and not saying it's, it's made up or anything, but that it truly reflects what is happening in the economy because we just had a gigantic GDP print and the job market still seems strong and yet everybody I talk to says, I'm working three jobs. Yeah, and, and we will see a fourth quarter because it's based upon a beginning point in the third quarter, a midpoint in the third quarter to a midpoint in the fourth quarter. So we're probably going to see officially, as you suggest, a, a number that's positive. But really, in, in terms of employment and in terms of jobs and in terms of uh, you know, weakness in uh, many of the indicators, I, I think we're going to see November and December be below the line as opposed to above the line. All right, you, you, let's talk about banks because you made a great trade in April. You bought some regional banks, they rose up, you sold them in July. You've been saying, I'm waiting. Well, today, you said the falling knife, meaning these stocks going down, they've hit bottom. You like citizens, you like key. What, first off, why do you think there is a bottom or close to bottom in regional banks, given some of the negative metrics that we have just seen? And also, why those names? What, what makes those different than the 500 others that are out there? Okay, well, um, regional banks are, uh, are beneficial or benefit from lower interest rates. And so we've gone down by 40 basis points. Many of these banks, including Bank of America, including uh, Schwab, et cetera, have long-term positions, long-term bond positions in their portfolio. And so, you know, a 2 or a 3% rise in prices is beneficial for them. They also have to issue about $25 billion of future bonds based upon, uh, you know, regional requirements and, and uh, government regulations. And so uh, lower interest rates held them too. So, um, you know, it's just a, a more positive atmosphere. Regional banks are at, uh, and many of them are at 50% of book value, which is historically low. They yield in many cases 7% plus with a 40% payout ratio, which, you know, provides a decent amount of protection. And so, you know, if you want 10% secure and potential for price gains like today, which were 4 to 5 to 6%, then, you know, I think it's a good bet relative to some of the Magnificent Seven and uh, Apple in particular. Well, can we bring up the names again because they were on the board. You did that, Bill, I think. I mean, the, they, most of the other ones didn't go up that. You tweeted out this morning, and some of the – I'm assuming you're, you're not selling into this, are you? You're still holding these names. No, I bought them uh, today as well and, and yesterday when I uh, sensed that markets, from a technical standpoint, had, had probably bottomed and with interest rates declining – as I've mentioned, so uh, many of these banks, KeyBank, for instance, is a, a yielder at 7.5%. It has a payout ratio of about 70%, so it's a little riskier, but nonetheless, you know, to my way of thinking, attractive, as are uh, CFG, Citizens Financial, you know, yielding 7% plus with a low booked uh, uh, price uh -huh. ratio. And so um, th these these are investments that have been beaten down. They are value Stocks, which uh, in most cases in the last 12 to 18 months have not been, you know, attractive situations, but I think they are now. Well, one of the reasons we have you on is you, you move the market, certainly on those stocks. I want to ask you about a, a macro market view, and if you have one, here's the, here's the reason there, Bill. And I know you like the regional banks, obviously, like some pipelines, like energy transfer. 
Apple, we'll talk about them a little bit later in the show. Four straight quarters of sales declines. They've never done that since the iPhone was invented. Apollo Investments just said about two weeks ago that at least on one basis, an earnings yield basis to the 10-year, they think the stock market, the overall U.S. market, is the most overvalued, overvalued it's been in 20 years. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so, too. You know, uh, Stan Druckenmiller, who's, uh, you know, pretty renowned and, and very famous for um, past uh, performance, you know, suggested that P.E. ratios at 18, 19, 20 times, you know, are just not appropriate in a world in which real interest rates, the real interest rate on a 10 year, for instance, is 2.3 percent. When you line that up on a correlation basis going back two, five, ten years, you know, you'd find that, you know, typically a P.E. ratio of 14, 15 times is more appropriate. You know, it's true that the market hasn't adjusted to that and maybe it's a new market this time. It's a new uh, uh, Oldsmobile as opposed to your old uh, father and mother's Oldsmobile. But in any case, um, I think at 18, 19, 20 times the P.E. ratios are stretched. Wow. And no rich Corinthian leather, I think, on the overall stock market. Bill Gross, love having you on. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. We are just getting started here on Last Call. Up next, we just talked about it. Apple sales drop four quarters in a row. First time in 22 years. We'll dig in more on that. Plus, a verdict could come at any moment in the Sam Bankman-Fried fraud trial. Crypto heavyweight Michael Novogratz is here with insight on that and where he sees crypto going. They had a lot more to do. We're back right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the big headlines are going to be talking about tomorrow morning. And tonight, really, it is an earnings smorgasbord. First on the plate, financial tech company Block. They're the parent company of Cash App and Square. Shares up nicely. Block beat estimates and raised guidance. CEO Jack Dorsey, yes, he of Twitter fame, telling investors Block will also use AI technology to refocus the company's strategies next year. Hmm. All right, selection two on the menu, bookings, holdings. Earnings at the travel company also beat. They had big numbers from hotel room nights sold, as well as air and rental car tickets. And what recession? CEO Glenn Fogel noting the company sees strong travel demand into next year, too. Now, given the results, huh? market was not that impressed. Booking holdings down 4%. Finally, we just hit on Apple. Wow. And that stock is down. They said overall sales of products fell for fourth 
quarter in a row. That is the first time that has ever happened since the iPhone was invented. Sales down four quarters in a row, first time in 22 years. That stock down 3.3%. Let's dive more into it. Steve Kovac, he is out west. He has got the numbers. I know you were talking to Tim Cook as well. Investors don't like it, Steve. Yeah, so let's break this down. Even though there is a beat on the top and bottom lines uh, for Apple, Brian, the stock still took a dip after the earnings call and after they gave some guidance for what to expect in the holiday quarter. Now, let's go over the results for, first for this uh, the fourth quarter. EPS came in at $1.46 versus $1.39 estimated. Revenue was a little bit of a beat here, $89.5 billion versus $89.28 billion expected. That's down 1% from a year ago. And as you said, marking the fourth quarter in a row of declining sales, not just that, a full fiscal year of declining sales as well. But it was CFO Luca Maestri on the call telling investors revenue for the December quarter would be similar to what it was a year ago. That's implying little to no growth. Analysts were expecting Apple to guide towards about 5% revenue growth. Those comments sent shares down after hours. Now, as for the segments, let's go over some of the most important ones. iPhone revenues, they were right in line with expectations, $43.81 billion. That's up 3% and a September record for the iPhone. I caught up with Apple CEO Tim Cook for a deeper dive into that quarter. Here's what he told me about demand for the iPhone 15. Quote, Obviously, we launched the new iPhone 15 family during the quarter. It's the best product lineup we've ever had for iPhone, and we're excited to get those into the hands of customers as quickly as possible. It's still early, and the iPhone 15 Pro and the iPhone 15 Pro Max are still constrained, and we're working hard to get those out as quickly as possible. But look, services showing re-accelerated growth. This is the positive part of the, of the report here. Up 16% from a year ago to $22.31 billion dollars. Cook telling me growth in the App Store, advertising, Apple Care, and more contributed to those numbers. But as for Mac, that was a disappointment with revenues down 34% to $7.61 billion. But Cook sounding optimistic about the Mac business will get a boost in the holiday quarter thanks to those new Macs announced earlier this week with the company's latest chip they're calling the M3. Still very disappointing guidance, sending shares lower, Brian. We'll have to wait until probably next calendar year to see if Apple can return to meaningful growth, Brian. Big story. We'll see you tomorrow, I'm sure. They're naming their chip after a BMW. What's next? Steve Kovac, thank you. All right, we got some good news out of Hollywood. TV and movie company Paramount. That stock is surging right now. Julia Borston is here. Julia, the stock was a, a terrible at the beginning of the year. What has turned, apparently, at Paramount? Well, Brian, in this quarter, Paramount beat on the top and by bottom line. Adjusted earnings of 30 cents per share were triple the earnings that Wall Street expected. Now, this upside surprise was thanks in large part to the direct-to-consumer business narrowing its losses much faster than anticipated, with a loss of $238 million for the division in the quarter. That's more than $200 million less than the $434 million estimated loss that analysts were looking for. Now, the company noted a key thing here, saying that direct-to-consumer revenue and subscribers 
grew better than expected, while they also managed to narrow their direct-to-consumer losses by over 30 percent. They said that they expected direct-to-consumer losses in 2023 to be lower than they were last year. That means that their streaming investment peaked ahead of plan. They say, quote, we remain on the path to achieving significant total company earnings growth in 2024. Brian, this is certainly a bullish note that was sending the stock up nearly 5% in after-hours trading. Sherry Redstone, okay, this company founded, or not founded, but kind of built up and run by her, maybe it was founded by her father, the late, great Sumner Redstone. Sherry Redstone, still an enigma, not, you know, not out there in the public eye very much. Is she going to sell? Like, what, what's the story behind the story at Paramount? Yes. I mean, look, there are a lot of assets here that um, have been in the market. For instance, BET is an asset there was a lot of interest in. Um, They were shopping it around and then effectively they decided not to sell BET. They said it'd be more valuable as part of their portfolio of assets. There's been a lot of speculation about who might be interested in buying up Paramount Plus and merging that streaming company with other streaming assets. A lot of speculation about M&A here. There was a question about it on the earnings call and CEO Bob Backish shot it down, said they're happy with the assets they have, um, sort of a rote answer there, um, but clearly trying to, to do the most that they can with the streaming assets they have and really figure out how to make this a streaming engine that's profitable. And the fact that they really turned the corner here was something that he focused on um, when explaining why they, they were not subscale. And that's one reason there's been so much speculation about M&A around this company is this idea maybe they're subscale, maybe they need to team up with someone else to work, but he shot it down. It was a big corner they turned around, and they certainly did, and the stock is uh, responding. Julia Borston, thank you. All right, still ahead, Sam Bateman Freed's moment of truth. A jury verdict could come any day, at any time. We are going to head to the courthouse next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. We are officially on Verdict Watch in the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. The arguments are over, and now it is up to 12 women and men to decide Bankman-Fried's fate. Kate Rooney has been there since the beginning. Kate, uh, they're deliberating now. We've got about, what, an hour and a half till they could make a verdict. It probably will drag into next week. Yeah, even less, Brian. It looks like we've got now almost 30 minutes or so. It's going to wrap around 8 p.m. The jury's now deliberating inside that courtroom behind me. It caps off a month of testimony and evidence in Sam Beckman-Fried's criminal trial. The group started deliberating shortly after 3 p.m. today. Court usually adjourns around 4.30, but the judge extended until 8 p.m., giving them a chance to reach a verdict before the weekend. The court is not in session tomorrow, so if there's no verdict tonight, they're going to be back here on Monday. We just learned that the jury asked the judge to see the transcript from two the testimonies from two venture capital investors. They also asked for post-its and highlighters and the actual indictment. So it sounds like they're doing some work back there. Legal experts point out they may also want some time to discuss all of the evidence that they've heard since they weren't allowed to talk about the case amongst themselves until now, until today. One legal expert 
told me three to four hours would be considered lightning fast as far as a decision. If it does go quickly, experts also tell me it's not great news for Bankman Free. That would most likely mean it would have found him guilty on all counts. A quick decision would signify they didn't take a lot of time debating those charges. The jurors would have felt strongly about a conviction if that is the case. If it does go past Monday, I'm told that's when you can really start reading into what the jury is thinking. A delay could mean there's one or two or more holdouts who don't think he's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The jury is weighing seven counts of fraud and conspiracy. There is some overlap in evidence for those charges. There needs to be a unanimous decision one way or the other. Just one holdout could result in a hung jury. Nine out of 12 jurors are women. There's a physician's assistant, train conductor, postal worker, a few retirees. There's one former investment banker in that group. And over the past four weeks, they've heard two very different portraits of the crypto founder, Sam Bankman-Fried. The prosecution says he built a pyramid of deceit, defrauding customers, investors, and lenders out of billions of dollars. They say he knowingly stole customer money, gambled with it, and then doubled down on some of those bets, even though he knew about a multi-billion dollar hole in his crypto companies. The defense, though, says he never had criminal intent. He didn't know the extent of the damage. They say there's a lot more nuance to the story and that it's not a movie. Sam is not the villain, as they put it. Brian, back to you. You know, from a decision perspective, Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos, that verdict took eight days to decide. You had Raj Rajaratnam, kind of a blast from the past, Galleon Hedge Fund. That verdict came in 12 days. So given the complexity of this, Kate, I'm not going to ask you to speculate, but it would seem unlikely that it's going to be a day or two. I mean, this is this is there's seven counts, wire fraud, securities fraud. This is a complicated case, is it not? It is. And it really comes down to if he knew about the things that they accuse him and the hedge fund and cryptocurrency company of doing, if he knew about it and if he had criminal intent, those are really the two core things. And the, the substantive charges are really what they're, they're, they need to think about here. Those would be, did he do those things? And then the conspiracy charges kind of add on there. I'm told it kind of varies on who you ask. Some people say it could be Monday or Tuesday and that it could move pretty quickly. Others say, as you said, it's more complicated. Although the, the prosecution really has tried to simplify it and say this is a simple case of fraud. Forget the cryptocurrency and financial jargon. Think about your own common sense when it comes to your financial life and has really tried to, to just make it a simple yeah. story for the jury. We'll see what happens there. But there may we thought it, at some point there was also the psychology of wanting to get this done before the weekend. There could be people that would have made their mind up three weeks ago and could just be waiting to get in there and, and raise their hand and yeah. vote either way. I'm almost done with Michael Lewis's book, Going Infinite. And the one thing that stuck out to me, and we'll, we'll, get, we'll say goodbye, Kate. Thank you. I'll just tell the, the audience is that, and I urge everybody to read it. It's a great book was that Bankman-Fried, just the wild spending on elections and, and trying to literally buy elections, and he s- says it. According to Michael Lewis in the book, we're just going to throw a bunch of money at these primaries, and if we throw enough money at enough people, some of them will, will win. It, it really, truly remarkable stuff in going infinite. Michael Lewis, if you're watching, you're welcome on the show anytime. All right. The trial comes at a unique moment for crypto. First up, Coinbase posted earnings after the bell. They reported a net loss of $2 million, but trading volume also down compared to last year. Shares now, they are down about 4.5% on the news. But in the last year, Coinbase is up nearly 40%. Then you have Bitcoin's big rally. In fact, since FTX's bankruptcy filing on November 11th of last year, Bitcoin has effectively doubled. Does this show that Bitcoin, Ether, and other crypto is really, truly, finally decentralized? Let's talk about that and other things and bring in 
investor and hedge fund legend Michael Novogratz, founder and CEO of Galaxy Digital. Michael, great to have you on Last Call. I'm not going to go into the trial, but I will say this. When, when, the, when the bankruptcy occurred and the arrest was made, there were people out there saying crypto's done. This is the Bernie Madoff of crypto. It's finished. And yet all that's happened is Bitcoin has doubled, Ether's up, and a bunch of other coins are up. How come? Yeah, listen, you know, Bitcoin and the whole cryptocurrency movement has never been about one person, right? I mean, Sam was a charismatic figure that, you know, unfortunately uh, led, led D.C., uh, uh, in the wrong direction in lots of ways. But um, last year, it was kind of the bad news was all out. And uh, there's something symbolic about this trial ending right now as crypto gets gets fresh legs. Uh, I think there was so much, you know, fear, bad, bad news, because it wasn't just Sam. There were a bunch of other frauds and or huge risk management failures. And so crypto was supposed to go down last year because the Fed was raising rates aggressively. And so if you think about Bitcoin as a macro asset, when Chairman Powell is trying to kill inflation and, and, and is being aggressive to do it, you know, things like gold and silver, Bitcoin should should go down. Uh, it went down a lot further than it would have because mm -hmm. of FTX and Celsius and BlockFi and, and others. And I would throw and in so, yeah, Three Arrows Capital as well, Michael, right? I mean, I know not, yep. di not directly and it wasn't an exchange. But I think you get my macro point. And so that's all been cleansed out. I mean, even, yeah. Bin even Binance, I would say, argue and say I'm wrong if I am, isn't what it used to be. So is there anybody or any firm that's truly sort of running the show? Or is that the whole point? We don't need that. That is the whole point. You know, there are 150 million people uh, that own Bitcoin. That's a lot of people. That's more than almost any asset in history um, from small you know, holders in Indonesia to large whales that you don't even know where they are half the time. Um, and people are storing their wealth in this when they see, you know, fiscal performance like we see in the United States. Like we're, we're at a fiscal disaster right here with our deficit. Uh, right. The government is spending 25 percent of GDP. Uh, federally, that should be 20 percent. That's five percent more than we should be spending. And we're at full employment. Uh, and so we've lost our way fiscally. A lot of other countries have as well. And so people are looking at what to do with their money. Uh, Bitcoin is is certainly, I think, this generation's digital gold. Uh, gold is trading great. Silver is trading great. Uh, I, I think you know, it, we're well-timed right mm -hmm. now, given, you know, the Fed is pausing. Uh, you know, I think Chairman Powell used the word restrictive 22 times in his press conference. And so if you don't think he, he thinks what they've done is restrictive, you should just re-listen to that press conference. Um, and so we've got some tailwinds all of a sudden. We most likely get an ETF this year announced and start trading next year. And so when you put it all together, there's a really nice tailwind for Bitcoin, which is then going to drive the rest of crypto. The ETF has been like waiting for Guffman, the movie, right? Like just kind of wait, just or <laughs> yes. Godot or whatever. If you want to be sophisticated, you just keep waiting. And, it, and it's some we're waiting, we're waiting for Gensler. <laughs> waiting for Gensler. So let me ask you about let me ask you about this. OK, Gensler considered public enemy number one by a lot in crypto uh, is anti crypto policy. So it's a little bit crazy. OK, and, and but you know what? It's it's nighttime here. Let's be a little bit crazy. We actually tracked Bitcoin's performance over the last year with President Biden's approval numbers. Now, they've come down. That's the white line, and they're not down much, but they are down. 
And so Bitcoin is moving up. And this is we're doing this mostly for kind of fun. But also, is there a measure of truth that if Gensler, for whatever reason, is not in his job next year and you get where I'm going at and somebody who's pro crypto is. Is there any reason, Michael, that that crypto has been going up because there is thought that Gensler may not be around in his job in a while? Look, I think no matter who gets elected, most likely uh, with the new administration, the new Democrat or Republican administration, or independent, Gensler won't be it. or independent. There's another guy uh, out there. Gensler, we interviewed him, and he likes Gensler he will, likes crypto. He does, uh, and that Gensler won't be in his job. You know, very few people will stay two terms at the SEC, and whoever takes over, uh, listen, if you, you, a lot of these cases, Coinbase's case. Um, you know, uh, the Paxos's case, there are a lot of crypto cases that are coming in the pipeline. You've got a really right, right wing leaning Supreme Court. And as these things make it through the court, I don't think the, the, the head of the SEC is going to want to actually take these cases all the way to the court. Uh, and so my guess is we get a new head of the SEC and a lot of these crypto legal cases around what's a token and what's not a yeah. token end up getting settled. If, so, uh, if somehow, listen, if so, everyone prefers him as anti-vax, but you'd also refer to him as pro-crypto. Pro if somehow Robert F. Kennedy Jr. can get elected, okay, we're just having some fun here. Is that Bitcoin to 100,000, Michael? Bitcoin would do very well. Uh, listen, a lot of the, the other Republican candidates as well, outside of Donald Trump, uh, all have been very pro-grid, right? Right. Uh, Vivek, uh, wildly pro-crypto. And so, you know, again, I don't think that's within the, unfortunately, in the realm of reality. Um, I think we're going to either have Biden or Trump unless something dramatic happens, uh, which is, you know, it's kind of shocking when you think about it, uh, that these are the two best candidates the United States can come up with. I was literally just traveling. I was in the Mideast and every meeting I had was the same refrain. We can't believe a country with 330 million people, so many bright people. And this is what your your choices are uh, every single meeting. But that's kind of the state of democracy today. Um, well, they're run by the machine. You know what I mean? Like maybe we need a Bitcoin for politics. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of truth. Right? To that. Decentralized, controlled by the Mac, because it used to be we elected them. Now they just they stay there forever and they get all, everybody gets rich. Both parties. They, nobody ever leaves. It's, you know, they all live in a different state. Anyway, that's that's a different state. I, I have, different I have run a Twitter campaign called End the Gerontocracy. Nobody over 72. And I actually swore I'll never vote for anyone over 72. Uh, you I, could also just call it term limits. Uh, people call me an ageist. But I just I just don't think what's I what we're seeing that, is healthy. Well, if you're an ageist, there's a lot of companies out there and pilots. They have they have max ages. I mean, is United Airlines ageist if they say you're X age and you can't be a pilot anymore? I I, I don't think so. But Michael Nov, that's a different show and a different network. We'll, we'll talk about <laughs> Michael Novogratz. Thank you. Welcome back anytime. All right. Very bullish there on crypto. All right. Still had a new segment we're going to call Dumpster Diving with Herb Greenberg. Kidding. Sort of. Because a lot of down and out stocks are soaring right now. Why? Herb Greenberg has the answers. All right, welcome back. We have breaking news. A verdict apparently has been reached in the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried, the disgraced founder of crypto exchange FTX. 
Let us bring in Kate Rooney back in front of the camera. And Kate, we know we have a verdict. I do not believe we know what the verdict is on the seven charges, correct? Correct, Brian. We are told about 10 minutes or so. The jury's got a verdict. They're going to bring that to us in about 10 minutes. We've got a team inside the courtroom. He is, again, accused of seven counts of fraud and conspiracy. We will see what that verdict is. But as I mentioned a few minutes ago when we chatted, Brian, when I talked to legal experts, they said a swift decision is typically not great news for the defendant. So we will see what the, the verdict is, and we're expecting to get that within about 10 minutes or so, Brian. Yeah, it's well said that generally when these verdicts are in general, and we're, we're not surmising, just kind of on historical things of a case of this complexity, when a verdict is yep. reached very quickly, it tends to not be good for the defendant. As I noted, Elizabeth Holmes, Theranos, that was an eight-day deliberation. Raj Rajaratnam of Hedge Fund Galleon, that was a 12-day deliberation. This is actually quite shocking, Kate, because they've been deliberating for less than a day and as I understand it, they just had dinner from 6 to 7 p.m. So this this would be literally a, a verdict reached in a couple of hours of de deliberation on a About trial that took weeks. A weeks, weeks. They heard from 20 witnesses. They heard hours and hours of evidence and documents. And as I said, they, they went back and asked the judge for post-its and highlighters. And it sounded like they, they had some follow-ups. So they definitely had some questions in there. But the speed and velocity at which they just came to a decision says a lot about the conviction of the jury one way or the other. Yeah, and I want to give our viewers an idea of, of what exactly he has been charged with. And there's seven different charges. I'm going to walk through them. I believe that we have a graphic to show this. Uh, Bankman Freed has been charged with conspiracy to commit wire fraud on customers, wire fraud on lenders, wire fraud uh, in general, conspiracy to commit securities fraud, commodities fraud, money laundering, and conspiring to defraud the United States and violate campaign laws. And that's the point I'd brought up in your previous report, Kate, which is that the thing that shocked me yeah. about Michael Lewis's book was an entire chapter effectively on how Bankman Freed not only tried to buy elections, I mean, he basically said that, but that he knew he wanted the money to be harder to trace, so he did it through his buddy or his brother, Gabe Bankman Freed routed the money through Gabe, who had some sort of nonprofit yeah. or strategy firm, and they routed the money. Did politics, did these donations come up a lot in the court coverage? They did, and they came up in the context of what he was saying publicly and what he was doing behind the scenes. One of the points that the prosecution tried to make is that he was extremely secretive and using that example of how he donated to politics and to certain lawmakers and lawmakers in D.C. and how he did it through certain PACs, his brother, his mom, in a lot of cases, was an example of how he's secretive. It's actually interesting. The campaign finance violations are actually a separate lawsuit that he's going to have to face down the road. So this was about investors, about customers and about fraud. The campaign finance issues are actually going to be brought in a separate trial. But it does speak to some of what was going on behind the scenes. And Brian, actually, when you were reading the charges, I want to point something out. So there's a difference. You went to law school, so you know this better, better than anybody. But I've learned this in the past few weeks, that there are substantive charges, meaning the example people use is if you robbed a bank, the actual bank robbery would be the substantive charge. It would be the act of doing that. Then there are the conspiracy charges. So you would also be charged with the conspiracy, talking about wanting to rob a bank, would be the conspiracy charge. So it actually, on the, the substantive charges, 
are one issue and then the conspiracies are actually tend to happen more quickly because mm -hmm. they'll, the jury can often agree, okay, if you rob the bank, there's often a conspiracy yeah. to do it as well. So that's okay. just something to clarify for the audience uh, that some people might know, but you of course know because you went to law no, school. No, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't practice. <laughs> I, didn't, I, did, I didn't do particularly well either. So I want to be clear on that, but you're exactly right. You've got the conspiracy for wire fraud and then wire fraud. And you say, well, aren't they the same? No, to your point, one is actual wire fraud. One is sort of, I'm planning to engage in the illegal act of wire fraud and of course you can be guilty of one innocent on the other and as i understand it kate that if he is convicted on all seven of these charges and we don't know but if he is this could be a life sentence 115 years is the max that he is facing That's a life so sentence. absolutely a life sentence for him he's 31 years old and that would amount to a life sentence the fact that he testified could also add years to that sentence i'm told i mean the judge has complete discretion when it comes to sentencing. There are certain guidelines, but if the judge feels that he got up there and perjured himself and lied at any point, it could add to the sentencing. So we will see. Again, we don't have a verdict yet, but that's something to take into consideration when we do hear about sentencing if he is convicted. And by the way, we're going to show a timeline in a second, but I want to go back to something you had said before. We were talking about these political donations, okay? And some were routed through, through his brother, Gabe. You had mentioned some may have been routed through his mom, and I know that's a separate trial, but let's be honest about what may have happened here. These political donations, these we don't know if this were Sam Bankman Freed's money or if this was some neutral pot of money. This could, and correct me if I'm wrong, these political donations, okay, often to some candidates that others might find extreme on either direction, basically could have come from customer funds without their knowledge, correct? In other words, if I was an FTX customer, and don't and put a bunch of money into FTX to trade crypto. That money could have been shuffled to some candidate somewhere in Oregon. That's what the prosecution had argued. They had said politics and political donations were one area where he was spending. Celebrity endorsements came up a lot. The name Tom Brady was mentioned dozens of times. Katy Perry, he really wanted to spend big on these celebrity endorsements. Real estate was another big theme. He was spending hundreds of millions of dollars for real estate on himself, on his co-conspirators, and on his parents in the Bahamas. Those were the big areas where they showed yeah. he was taking customer money and he was spending it, misappropriating it, and using it illegally, is what yeah. the prosecution has alleged here. Yeah, and at the beginning of the year on my uh, 5 a.m. previous show, Worldwide Exchange, we were keeping track of these donations and who said they might give it back. We should bring that back, Kate, because a lot of these politicians and PACs Got a yeah. lot of money and say, well, we'll give it back in time. Somebody, us, maybe needs to track every dollar to make sure it gets back. Kate, you're waiting on the verdict. We'll let you go there. All right, folks. So listen, I want to give you a quick rundown of the FTX timeline, because if you wonder why we are spending so much time on this topic, OK, you've probably heard of Sam Bankman-Fried. You might have heard of FTX. You obviously have heard of crypto. Maybe you know a lot. Maybe you know a little. But let's kind of fill you in on exactly why this case has captivated not just Wall Street, but a lot of other people's attention. Sam Bankman-Fried grew up in California, went to MIT, very smart guy, got a job as a Wall Street trader at a firm called Jane Street Capital right out of college at MIT. Lewis's book lays out how good he is at games and just how smart the guy is. Nobody's questioning Bankman-Fried's raw intellect. He had some losing bets at Jane Street. He had some winning bets. It's where he met his former girlfriend, former colleague, Caroline Ellison, as well. He leaves Jane Street, one of the few people that do because they pay you millions if you're successful. And in May of 2019, he founds FTX, which is short 
for Futures Exchange. FTX was founded about the same time he founded a firm called Alameda Research, which, as we later learned, despite the sort of bland name, was actually a massive multi-billion dollar hedge fund that was bleeding money. All right, so FTX founded in 2019. It took off. It, for whatever reason, it grew very quickly. Everything was offshore, Hong Kong, because a lot of futures in crypto trading, not legal here in the United States. And by July 2021, FTX, with these investment rounds, had an $18 billion valuation. In October of 2021, they had another investment, which gave it a valuation of $25 billion. Big-time investors, Tiger Global, pitching in. And the final funding round, was in January of 2022. And with the $400 million investment for it, all right, we have a verdict as I understand it. The firm was worth $32 billion, now bankrupt, Sam Bankman-Fried on trial. And we understand that there are verdicts in. Kate Rooney, is that accurate? Don't quite have a verdict yet that's reportable. Uh, we are still waiting on that verdict. We've got it, but we are waiting to hear officially on that verdict. We'll keep you updated, Brian, but we yeah, don't have want to make quite sure, yet. Listen, want to, in this day and age, you want to make sure it's right. 100%. <laughs> you got to make sure. Exactly. Give me one more second, Brian. We'll wait until we're triple short. We've got our team inside. It's going to be sprinting out. We have an intern who has a career as a SCOTUS intern. She's got her sneakers on, well, and she's going to bring us Kate, when you but, when you. Uh, when you agreed to take up the crypto beat, you never knew that it would very short time be the be the criminal law beat. <laughs> Kate Rooney at the courthouse, flag us, okay, so raise your hand, wave it, and we'll come right back to you. We get that verdict as well. Let's bring in somebody who was. All right, now I'm just told we actually do have it. And what Kate has, it is reportable. Kate Rooney. Sam Bankman-Fried. Guilty on all seven counts wow. of fraud and conspiracy. Confirmed here, Brian. That is confirmed. Sam Bankman-Fried found guilty in his criminal trial. Fraud and conspiracy. I'll read you the counts here. Count one, wire fraud for FTX customers. Guilty of that. Count two, conspiracy to commit wire fraud on FTX customers. Guilty there. Wire fraud here for lenders. Count mm. four is conspiracy to commit wire, wire fraud for lenders. We also hear... Brian have count five, conspiracy to commit securities fraud, conspiracy to commit commodities fraud, and conspiracy to commit money laundering. Guilty on all seven counts there, Brian. Sam Bankman-Fried convicted on all seven accounts. Uh, he is likely facing a lifetime in prison, if not the majority of his natural life. Kate Rooney, we'll see you in just a bit. Uh, let's go and bring back in uh, Skybridge Capital founder and FTX investor, Anthony Scaramucci. And I, and I, and I want to be clear uh, Anthony, that, you know, listen, I don't know Bankman-Fried, never met him. Kate has, you have. I also want to remember this is somebody's son. It's somebody's brother. He's probably now going to go to prison for the rest of his life. I know a lot of people lost money and don't have a lot of sympathy, but it is, it is kind of a seminal day. And I have to say, I am extremely surprised by the rapidity of the jury's verdict. Are you? No, you know, and Brian, you had me on the air a few days ago. I said that uh, there he was defenseless up there. If you actually read the transcript, and I just remind people, the U.S. attorney in the Southern District, you're going to trial. It's a 98% conviction rate. They don't take these cases lightly. But if you read through the transcript of what Sam said in terms of trying to defend himself, 
uh, it was practically indefensible. So I'm not surprised by the verdict. Of course, he'll appeal the verdict. He'll likely get sentenced. He'll be put in jail, possibly for his lifetime or several decades at least. Um, and it's a sad day in many respects, but it's also a good day for justice, because if you're committing that type of crime, uh, you have to serve the time for that type of crime. And hopefully this sends a message of deterrence to other people uh, that think like Sam. It'll be also interesting to see what happens to the four executives that have pled guilty already, Brian. It'll yeah. be interesting to contrast their sentences to Sam's sentence. But uh, for me, it's a sad day, but I would like to get this behind us and focus on the growth in this extraordinary industry. Uh, and unfortunately, like most new technologies, you get some fraudsters in there. We've had them in the railroads, the airlines, uh, the internet. Yeah. Uh, and so hopefully we'll get this behind us. Yeah, and we, we look at these, these charges, seven charges, and again, not sure what the sentencing guidelines are in each one, but I know all seven would be effectively a life sentence, a maximum, as you heard Kate say, of 115 years and at 31, so that that is... That is a lifetime sentence. And guys, can we show these two covers? I mean, Sam Bankman-Fried was on the cover of Forbes. He was on the cover of Fortune, which, if our viewers can't see it, underneath it, it says, the next Warren Buffett, question mark. And just the, the sort of the cult of personality around Sam Bankman-Fried. You know, everything I've read in, in Lewis's book so far says he's just kind of this almost Bengali, where he just kind of, not bullied, but he just said stuff. And he just did stuff and everybody kind of went along with him. Why do you think he was so, to your term, defenseless on the stand? And he did have a hotshot lawyer, Chris Everdell, who clearly didn't do that great of a job. Well, I mean, listen, you have to work with the facts. If you're a uh, criminal defense lawyer and uh, there's a smoking gun and there's a body and there's four witnesses that have already pled out to being your accomplices, you know, you're not Harry Houdini. You know, it's 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 a, it was an impossible task. Uh, one will have to wonder if somebody writes an aftermath. I'd love to get Michael Lewis on to discuss this. You know, mm -hmm. what the mom and dad were thinking as Stanford law uh, business professors to put him through that and subject him to this eventual sentencing. And now maybe they'll push back and say, well, he's a 31 year old man and we didn't really have any control over it. And 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 that probably speaks to his whole life in terms yeah. of that independent streak. And entrepreneurship. But look, you know, it's a it's a sad day in many respects. And I appreciate what you said, by the way, because I'm also a dad. Uh, and I remember the pain on Sam's father's face uh, last November the 8th when I was down in the Bahamas visiting them when this fraud was uncovered. So uh -huh. my heart goes out to him in a lot of ways. Uh, but this is something that uh, has happened. And we need this type of deterrence in our system uh, to prevent more fraud. Uh, and thankfully, uh, this happened before it mushroomed into an even bigger catastrophe, yeah. Brian. And, and so if, we, if, uh, we even, if we even, if we even, to badly paraphrase Shakespeare, the Tangled Weave, Caroline Ellison's father, I believe, was Gary Gensler's boss at at MIT. Believe yeah. it or not. So you look, yeah. you look at. There's all these webs of connection at these high levels. Spring in. Uh, Michael Novogratz, who we had on earlier, we were talking about crypto as well, and Michael kind enough to kind of uh, uh, pop back on, uh, and we've got Anthony Scaramucci. Still, Michael, your take. Listen, I think Anthony was pretty articulate uh, and, and caught the spirit of it. It's sad. Like, you know, I've met Sam a bunch, 
he was a kind guy, though he, you know, was a huckster when it came down to it. Uh, you know, he stole my money. He stole lots of people's money. Uh, and so I do think justice gets served here. Um, it's sad for him because, like I said, anytime I asked him for anything, he was unbelievably kind. It, it you know, it was a very strange, almost sociopathic. Michael, I guess here's where the confusion could be, is that this jury, this is a record time for this type of complex case. This is not some low-level, I saw somebody steal a bike and that's the guy and he's guilty and there you go. This was seven counts. This is crypto. This is a lot of foreign yeah, but accounts. It, but but it, was, it was very straightforward. Like for us at Galaxy, we, we had assets on deposit at an exchange uh, the contract was very clear. They were our assets. They weren't allowed to do anything with them. And he took those assets and he did stuff with them. He let them to himself. Like that is as clearly illegal as one can see. And I think the lawyers probably pretty did, probably did a pretty good job of showing, you know, ca- uh, count after count after count just yeah. like that. And and so and I guess so my my well my this my, wasn't this wasn't bad risk management. It wasn't uh, not paying attention. This was. You know, someone who was cheating the system from the very start yeah. and was able to put pull off this, you know, Bermuda shorts and curly hair and and sweet face, uh, you know, persona. And they broadly snookered the world. Yeah. And, and uh, that's, to, I guess, where some of the confusion again may be, which is that to the jury, to these 12 women and men, they they, they you know, of course, they were given all the evidence. They made the quick decision. Investors did not see it, right? It wasn't that obvious to them. And let's go back to Anthony's former point, Michael, and Anthony, jump in on this as well. Michael, you know, you look at the, the four, you know, Gary, you know, and Caroline Ellison and Ryan and, and the other that pled guilty to this. And when you read, again, I'm just going off Lewis's book. So whatever, the, I'm going off trusting his word, Michael, that there was almost a sense of relief among them when, when all of this came down because you got the feeling that they knew, they knew that this was, this was messed you, up. You don't pull this off. No one pulls this. And they also kind of guilty, but, but they, kept qui- they kept quiet for months. So what do, you, what do you think should serve, happen to they them? They should also serve time uh, behind bars and for what they did. That'll be interesting. Oh, oh, you know, listen, I agree with that. So the question is, you know, some people have speculated that none of them will serve time because they were, you know, pushing for the big fish, Sam. And so I hope Michael's correct uh, and that uh, there's some punishment there as well. But but listen, you know, it's a, uh, and I think Michael will say this, uh, we were together days after this happened in Abu Dhabi. I don't know if you remember that, Michael, but we looked at each other and said, wow, this is going to be a catastrophe. He's going to jail for a very long time. Here we are one short year later. Yeah. And this whole thing is unfolding. And, and to Michael, to your point, and again, I want to be clear with the audience, I am I am going off of Mike Michael Lewis, one of the world's most famous and trusted authors. I'm going off his account. Yeah, and, Mike, and, though Michael, I would say Michael seemed to have been snookered a little bit here. Like he he fell hook, line, and sinker for the charm of Sam. Uh, and it comes across in his book. Uh, like he, he really likes the guy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm not... There, there's something, yeah, fair enough. There is, there's something in the book, and I'm, I'm making a point in this, Michael. There's something in the book where he actually says he's, he's rifling over Bankman Freed's desk in the Bahamas, and he said the one thing I learned about Bankman Freed was how easy it was to steal from him, and meaning Michael Lewis is poking through his stuff. He had, like, he had like top-secret papers that just laying around on his desk. There was no internal controls, is my point. 
And what also stuck out to me, and this goes back to the four that have pled guilty, Michael, and comment on this, Nishad Singh, who, listen, these, these were young people. I mean, young women and men in their mid to late 20s. Nishad Singh, when the whole thing started to happen, went up to Bankman Freed, according to Lewis, and said, we need lawyers. We need to, we need to call lawyers. And Bankman Freed said, basically, no, we don't. We'll just deny everything. So it sounds like these four, at least Nishad, knew what was going on was wrong and if not illegal. And you believe that they should, despite, despite helping, they should serve some time. I think so. Listen, and, and I spent a lot of my life when it's not in crypto, in criminal justice reform, thinking our sentences in this country are too long for crimes. Uh, and so, you know, it's ironic that I'm, I'm saying these guys should spend time. But when I see, you know, the young men and women, mostly young men put in jail for three years, five years, 15 years for mostly being born in the wrong neighborhood, in the wrong zip code. And you've got these privileged kids who went to the best universities, who had the world as their oyster, and they did things as deceitful as happened here, it would be completely unjust and un-American that they're not serving some time. Yeah, and Anthony, listen, talk to us a little bit about uh, Bankman Freed's political connections, because there was, a, there was another part of the book where he talked about having, he had, a, he had one suit, and he would carry it like in his arm. He didn't even have a bag. And apparently he had some <laughs> big townhouse in D.C. that he used, and he went to dinner with Mitch McConnell at one point. He went to dinner with Ron DeSantis at one point because he wanted that political influence and, and the donations they made as well. I, I came away thinking, okay, this guy may be like sort of this absent-minded professor, but he seemed a lot more politically savvy than maybe it would, it would appear. Yeah, l- l- listen, he, he was a political almanac, and I think, uh, you, know, you know, can't speak for, for Mike Novogratz, but I spent enough time with him drilling deeply into politics. You know, he, you know, Michael, I don't know if you remember all this, but he he knew who was primarying who. Uh, he also was pretty open about sending money to Republicans in sort of this hidden way and sending money to Democrats in a more forward way. And uh, listen, you know, he knew a lot. He knew a lot about sports. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning of this thing, he's a smart guy. But when you marry smarts and sociopathic behavior, you end up in a debacle like this. Do you, and do you believe he gonna... was a sociopath? Oh, there's no question Listen, that he was a sociopath. He's yeah. to- totally disassociated from reality. You don't you do not do this to people. Michael Novogratz and I have been in this business for as longer than Sam's life. Okay? You don't take money from people. Okay? It's not your money. You got to get raised in a way where you, you understand that. Okay? And so he didn't do that. I mean, he, he was at the Robin Hood Conference. I, I was sitting with him and Larry Fink four weeks before this all came down, and you would have never thought he the whole world was unwinding on him. He's sitting there on stage, Eric and his can be, parrying back and forth with Larry. Uh, you know, this was four weeks in his Bermuda shorts with his floppy hair. And, like, that's, that's only the behavior of a sociopath. <laughs> you, yeah. you can't pull that off of, unless you can disassociate. Right. Yeah, and he said in letters to Caroline Ellison, basically, don't you don't want to date me? I don't feel any emotions toward anybody, and I hurt everyone around me. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said. I, but yet he kind of came across this smiley, frumpy sort of oddball. Well, listen, there, he he was very smart. Uh, you also have to remember this was an industry that was exploding, uh, right? Ethereum, mm-hmm. you know, went from a hundred 
to from one originally or 18 cents to four four thousand right and so there was this wild you know generation of wealth and in lots of cases young people who hadn't had their you know chops broken at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or or at some hedge fund found themselves with a lot of wealth and a lot of influence uh because they were a bit lucky or they were smart and lucky and then as soon as things got sour they made really bad decisions uh, you talked about three arrows capital or blockfi or celsius you know all of them didn't start off with socio you know uh, yeah. sociopathic tendencies a lot of them just made really bad and unethical decisions as the as the heat got turned up uh and so yeah. You know, Sam was kind of the poster boy of that that movement. He came with great credentials. Michael, right? Jane Street is world class. It, it is. It's a, and it's a firm nobody knows about, but is, is punches above its weight on Wall Street. Uh, really appreciate your generosity, guys. If I could ask for a little bit more, Michael and, and Anthony, please sit tight if you can. We'd like to come back to you. I do want to go back, though, to Kate Rooney, who is outside the courthouse yep. where the verdict was recently delivered. Kate. Hey, Brian. So I have some more color from inside the courtroom. They were all asked to come back in. Sam Bankman-Fried was asked to stand and face the jury. The four women had to read the verdict, stood staring straight ahead as far as Sam Bankman-Fried's demeanor. All seven counts were read in front of him. Each came back as guilty. His father put his head in his hands. His mom was very emotional. Sam Bankman-Fried was stoic, looking straight ahead. His attorneys asked for each of the jurors to be polled to make sure that was their decision. One by one, they ran around. They said, yes, they did find him guilty. Bankman-Fried, again, stared straight ahead. He was sort of looking down there. The sentencing is going to come March 28th. That's around 9.30 a.m. The second trial that has to do with political campaigns and those uh, finance donations that you mentioned, Brian, that's going to happen March 11th. The government has until February 1st for an update. We are also awaiting a press conference. We expect to hear from the attorneys on the government side, the assistant U.S. attorney, potentially within the next 10, 15 minutes or so. We may also hear from the defense team. We have not heard anything about an appeal, but we do expect that that would be the outcome here is that the defense team would look for an appeal. But again, we've got some microphones set up behind us. We could get a press conference coming up here soon, Brian, though. We'll keep you posted. Well, as we, as we said, um, not a lot of sympathy, I'm sure, for him, but we do have to remember that he is somebody's son, and he's looking at uh, likely lifetime in prison. Uh, Kate Rooney might come back to you as well. I know we've still got Michael Novogratz and Anthony Scaramucci as well. It's, it's you know, take what you want on the human side, um, Michael and Anthony. It's, it is going to be a difficult time, but let's look forward. Uh, Michael, it's FTX. You know, it's it's kind of like Madoff now that we can say that because the the jury decided that uh, he was guilty indeed. Um, is there any value in FTX? I know it's kind of being wound down. It's got it's got a new CEO. Is there a role for that type of a firm at all, or did they serve their brief and uh, uh, illegitimate purpose? Well, listen. You know, my my company, Galaxy. We're we're engaged with them as with the bank with with the the bankruptcy as as one of their asset managers. And so, I got to be very careful not to not to say much. I, I do think uh, John Ray, who who's running the bankruptcy and and uh, is doing a great job. And uh, luckily, there were a bunch of assets that have done very well. Uh, right, the crypto assets are up in price, mm-hmm. or, or some of them are. Uh, they've got uh, some private equity and venture positions that have done very well. And so hopefully, knock on wood, 
uh, investors uh, who, who thought they had lost a lot will get most of that back. Uh, and so, you know, this is in some ways it makes it more of a tragedy uh, for Sam and that, you know, he uh, he he at least made one really good AI investment that that that's going to really help with uh, recovery. Yeah. Guys, sit tight for a second. I want to bring in a, a, another voice here very briefly and we'll come back to you. And that is Patrick Hillman. He's the former chief strategy officer of Binance. And he was the one who looked at a deal with FTX and then walked away. Patrick, thanks for joining us. Why did you why did you advise the firm and CZ uh, who runs it to to walk away? What did you see? Well, look, the I think now a lot of the details will come out in court, um, but our team that was on the ground there that was reviewing uh, the data room and looking at the data, it was just indecipherable. Um, when you're thinking about acquiring or bailing out a company, you immediately start to ask for some of the most basic fundamental um, data. Um, how much money do you owe? What do you have in assets? What are your outstanding loans? And uh, what was provided to us was, for the most part, um, incoherent, and none of it added up. And the more that the team began to dig in, uh, the deeper the hole became and the more indecipherable the issue was for them. And so we were stuck between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, if we pulled out immediately, we knew we were going to get absolutely savaged by media for basically coming in and not being serious about you know, the takeover. Uh, on the other hand, if we waited a week, we would have been potentially you know, holding them up from seeking out other investors. In the end, we decided that the best thing to do was to be honest with the marketplace. It wasn't going to happen and let them move on and try and find somebody else to come in. That's really interesting. And, and something, you, if you heard we talk, we talk about the Michael Lewis book and that I didn't realize that CZ and Sam, Sam, hated CZ. I mean, for lack of a better term, I don't know what CZ felt towards Sam. And then when when Sam basically had to come groveling to CZ for money, that had to have been a dramatic moment. And apparently they were on the phone for hours. What did CZ tell you about what he thought about Sam Bankman-Fried and his team? I can tell you what CZ told me my very second week on the job at Binance. Um, he told me that he was fairly certain that FTX would eventually flame out because he didn't think they had enough money to support the expenditures that they're making. Look, you can look on chain and you can see uh, through the blockchain how much uh, these companies are making, for instance. Um, FTX at its peak was only about one eighth of Binance's size, but it was outspending us 10, 20 to one in marketing government affairs and so that never really smelled right to us. The second thing is, um, you know, Binance was 8,000 employees. And even with 8,000 employees, it was extraordinarily difficult to keep up with everything that we had to mm -hmm. do to be in compliance across the globe. FTX was 200 people. I knew a large part of the staff. But yeah, Mike, uh, Patrick, sorry, uh, sit tight. We are waiting on a press conference. Patrick, let me ask you this. You guys clearly didn't like what you saw. Did you think at any time that it was criminal or do you just think that it was just basically these are a bunch of guys that don't know what they're doing and it's a disaster and it's a mess? Or did you think and say maybe internally this doesn't look right? This could be illegal. Yeah, I mean, look, that that amount of a gap, eight billion dollars certainly smells illegal. And it was Patrick Kilman, um, former chief strategy officer of Binance. Appreciate that, Patrick. Appreciate the candor. Thank you very much. Check out Michael Novogratz and Anthony Scaramucci with us. Uh, it's. You know, and it's a complicated case for the audience, uh, I think, uh, Anthony, to understand, because they basically created this token, this FTT, and they funded it. Why wasn't, and by the way, by the way, this is bizarre. I, when this all came down, guys, I looked up their auditor. I tried to figure out who the auditor was. It turned out it was like one guy on the second story of an old house in Cranberry, New Jersey, who's like the auditor 
of FTX. How come nobody inside of Alameda or whatever either knew that it was basically self-dealing its own funds? Or do you think, Anthony, they were just too afraid to speak up or just they didn't know? So, I, I, you know, I'll be interested to hear what Michael says about this, because we were an investor in one of the FTX rounds. That wasn't the auditor on FTX. That was the auditor on Alameda. And since we weren't investing in Alameda and we thought that there was a very thick Chinese wall between the two two of those things. You know, uh, Michael and I grew up at Goldman Sachs, where we were steeped in the whole compliance and the rigorous compliance of keeping things separate. So when it was explained to us, at least our due diligence team, uh, that Sullivan and Cromwell lawyers had worked on this Chinese wall, uh, we got very comfortable with it. I think what you would also find, which came out a little bit in the case, that they did a pretty good job of creating a lot of backdoor accounting. So uh, my team that went in there, looked at the due diligence room, the data room, uh, mm-hmm. thought it was one of the more pristine data rooms. So um, the the accountant on the personal side wasn't something that bothered us because that was his personal stuff. Um, uh, but but yes, I read that in the book as well. Michael, you take yeah, listen, if you want to want to pull off a fraud and you're smart, you can pull off a fraud and it's hard to catch them. Right. You know, and uh, like, again, our our mindset, uh, especially the Wall Street guys, wasn't used to someone who's outright lying to you and stealing your money, uh, especially someone who came from Jane Street. Right. So that that Jane Street patina, you it, it carried a lot of weight with guys like mm-hmm. us. Right. And. It made sense, you know, uh, what I did kick myself on over and over again, I was like, how did he have so much money? You know, because he was spending billions like they were, like they were, That was literally literally losing it. Michael and Anthony, Michael, I apologize for interrupting you. The the prosecution is gathered. We're we're expecting some commentary. I want to go quickly to Kate Rooney. Kate, who are we looking at? Hey, Brian, so this is the prosecution team here. You've got the assistant U.S. attorneys lined up, ready to do a press conference outside of the courtroom here in lower Manhattan. We expect a press conference to start any minute. We will get a comment from the attorneys, it looks like here. But you can see them, the entire prosecution team lined up here outside of 500 Pearl Street. Here comes Damien Williams. He is the, let's see, I'll, uh, we'll go right to him. He's about to give a press conference. Good here, evening, Brian. everyone. My name is Damien Williams, and I'm the United States attorney here in the Southern District of New York. Sam Bankman-Fried perpetrated one of the biggest financial frauds in American history, a multi-billion dollar scheme designed to make him the king of crypto. But here's the thing, the the cryptocurrency industry might be new. The players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new. But this kind of fraud, this kind of corruption is as old as time, and we have no patience for it. When I became U.S. attorney, I promised that we would be relentless in rooting out corruption in our financial markets. This is what relentless looks like. This case moved at lightning speed. That was not a coincidence. That was a choice. And it's also a message. It's a warning, this case, to every single fraudster out there who thinks that they're untouchable or that their crimes are too complex for us to catch whether they're too powerful for us to prosecute, or that they could try to talk their way out of it when they get caught. Those folks should think again and cut it out. And if they don't, I promise we'll have enough handcuffs for all of them. 
Now, this verdict would not have been possible without the incredible work of the career prosecutors from my office and the special agents from the FBI who have been there every single step of the way. We have pushed them hard and they have met the moment and I am grateful for their service. Let me end with this. I understand that this case has gotten a lot of public attention. That makes sense. But the women and men of the Southern District of New York and the FBI consistently deliver outstanding public service on behalf of the American people, without fear or favor, and without any expectation of public acclaim. They do it because they believe in the rule of law. They do it because they love this country. They are patriots, and I am proud to serve with them. Thank you, everyone. Oh, I'm just going to wait and see if any of the other prosecutors are speaking or if it only is Mr. Damian Williams. Nope, it's only going to be Mr. Damian Williams. And you can see, basically came out and said, Bankman-Fried is, is young and new, but uh, crime is a crime, and you're going to do basically the, the time to do that. A uh, brief statement there. I wonder if we'll hear from the defense side. I doubt it, given the enorm enormity of the loss here. Uh, we still got Michael Novogratz, thankfully, and Anthony Scaramucci with us. Kind of, a, kind of Anthony, a short, but, um, you know, not sweet, but certainly direct and to the point comment by Damian Williams, the U.S. District Attorney. Well, I'm, I'm certainly glad about the expedition of the trial because uh, we, we've got to move past this as an industry. The industry's uh, growing, uh, very strong likelihood that we'll have a cash Bitcoin ETF here in the United States. Uh, which will be exciting for the industry, not just for Bitcoin, but other Web3-based products. And I'm just very glad, Brian, that this didn't go on like the Theranos case. The Elizabeth Holmes case was a six or seven year drag out, okay? And this this uh, fraud was really exposed November 8th or 9th of last year. The bankruptcy was on the 11th, uh, and we've already gotten a guilty verdict from a, a, a trial inside of a year. So uh, you got to give them credit for that. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and what now, Mike? Is it is just a, is this kind of just a, a very good thing for the crypto industry that this is now, aside from sentencing, behind us? Yes, it, it's certainly uh, certainly a good thing. Move beyond. You know, listen. Sam did a tremendous amount of damage to the trust and credibility of the industry, but he did also a ton of damage in D.C. Right. The 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 reason we don't have crypto legislation. Uh, in D.C. is because Democrats who got the majority of Sam's giving, though he gave a ton to Republicans, it wasn't his public, uh, are embarrassed, were embarrassed and just felt the stink of of dealing with a guy that's now going to jail. Um, and so they backed away. Uh, we were very close to bipartisan legislation then. I think give us a few more months and probably after the election, we'll get some bipartisan legislation, which you really need. Uh, to push the crypto industry forward at some point. Um, and, and guys, we do have a um, uh, we don't have a live comment, but we do have a statement from Bankman Freed's defense team. I'm going to read this to the audience and you guys can hear as well in a written statement. Bankman Freed's counsel, Mark Cohen says, quote, we respect the jury's decision, but we are very disappointed with the result. Mr. Bankman Freed maintains his innocence and will continue to vigorously fight the charges against him, which Michael, I find a little bit odd um, signals a potential appeal. I know there's a campaign finance case coming up, but I, I wonder what's left here to fight. You know, I think 
there's not a lot left to fight. And, you know, you say that. Listen, I'm not a lawyer, so I shouldn't say that. Um, I think for, for a jury to, to convict that quickly, uh, you know, tells you something. And so, you know, hope springs eternal, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, when you're looking at long, long periods uh, without liberty, uh, you'll, you maybe try anything. But uh, uh, I think this is pretty much behind us at this point. Uh, we will stop talking about Sam Bankman Freed uh, real soon. Uh, and hopefully we'll talk about positive things in the industry. Yeah, well, let's go to Harvard Law School graduate uh, and non-practicing attorney, mm -hmm. Anthony Scaramucci as well. Maybe, maybe the only thing I learned there was don't be a lawyer, Brian. Uh, you you and I both, my thing is that he has a process now. I guarantee you that CNBC and other media outlets will not be covering the appeal uh, the way we're vigorously covering this. He he had his trial. But it sounds trial. like they are going to appeal. I mean, I can't read that yeah, no, comment I believe any that other way. Appeal, I, but I don't think there'll be the media attention. We're just talking about the crypto industry, the business of crypto moving forward, the advancement of potentially national legislation, bipartisan national legislation on crypto. I think the good news is this is going to be behind us pretty quickly that appeal will be cursory. It'll be formulary. Um, I, I got it at 100% that that conviction will be sustained. He had a fair process. He had a fair jury. They're going to look through the procedures to see if they can pull a hair out on a procedural issue or something like that. Uh, but those are very professional U.S. attorneys. And that case was handled meticulously. Go look through uh -huh. the transcript of that case. They'll appeal. And as uh, Michael just mentioned, it'll be a process appeal. Uh, but I don't see any way that they'll win that. And I don't think there'll be a lot of media attention around it. Well, let's go back downtown. Where we're going to go back to Kate Rooney, who's also now joined by our other colleague, Mackenzie Segalos, who is actually in the courtroom. CNBC interviewing CNBC. I'm going to toss it to CNBC. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. All right, Mackenzie Segal is here. Mac, you were in the courtroom. Give us a picture. What went on in there? Can you give us any detail on Sam Bankman-Fried's reaction and just the tone inside the room? So at about 7.38 p.m., we found out that the jury had reached a verdict. Sam was in there. His parents were in the second row. Very somber. He didn't move. He was stoic. His the head was leaned down. And then as that jurors read out, the, the forewoman read out the verdict, he was standing facing the jury box, didn't flinch. And then he stayed in place well after the judge left. He stood there, Mark Cohen, his lead attorney, standing to his right, whispering into his ear, comforting him by putting his arm on his shoulder. His parents came up uh, they, when they were still sitting in the pews, leaned over, kind of feel, like it seemed visibly upset, but they weren't crying. And after Sam left the room, they were at the front row and I mean, journalists were packed around them. I wonder about the jurors. Could you get any sense of their reaction and any of their facial expressions? It's been so hard to see the jury in some of these overflow rooms. What was it like in there? I mean, they're pretty stoic. And, and I think that a lot of people were surprised by the quick turnaround here in terms of coming back and with less than three hours of deliberation. And so as the forewoman read the verdict, it was looking for a reaction from the other jurors. People pretty much had a straight face. There was no big reactions. You could hear a pin drop in the courtroom, like people in the pews weren't really reacting. So pretty somber ending to a very crazed few weeks. Was he led out of the courtroom too? And Sam Bankman-Fried's exit, I just wonder if you could tell at all, did it seem like he expected this outcome? 
It, it, there was a sense of inevitability and in his reaction and that of his parents. You weren't seeing tears. And while they did seem upset, leaning over, there was no outsized reaction to what was going on. In terms of whether he was let out of the courtroom, there was a side room just to the, you know, you know, just by where the desk was for the attorneys. That's where Sam went afterward. And, and then journalists were let out of the room. I wonder your take. You've been covering this for so many weeks. Were you shocked at the velocity at which we got this decision today? Yeah, I mean, everyone was expecting this case to run until Thanksgiving. And then you saw the government curtail their list of witnesses. There was meant to be a rebuttal case brought by the government. Once the defense rested, they decided against that. You know, prosecution, uh, a lot of their direct examinations, and then the follow-up cross-examinations just went so much faster than anticipated. So we're wrapping up like three weeks earlier than people thought we would. Really shocking. It just all has happened so quickly. I wonder your take. It's been so interesting. I've been asked about some of the the most shocking moments from inside the courtroom. Your reporting on CNBC.com has been incredible. And I feel like some of the moments that we have all been shocked by as, as reporters, I just wonder in your past four weeks inside that courtroom, what were the big moments and what really stood out to you as the things you'll remember? I think that it really was the first few witnesses that the government brought. So the people that were a part of Sam's inner circle, his ex-girlfriend and the former CEO of Alameda Research, Caroline Ellison. There was Gary Wong, his best friend from high school math camp. So someone who had been in his life for 15 years, co-founded these operations with him. And, and these are people who he cared deeply about, both in a personal and professional capacity, who turned on him. They made the government's case. And I think that very early on, uh, the prosecution felt like things were moving in their favor. And that's perhaps why things moved more quickly. Uh, but it really, I think that those, those moments of testimony from people who knew him best, who lived with him, who intimately knew him in a, in a personal capacity, really just made this case. I think you're right. And I, I think one of the reasons why it did move so quickly is because they had those witnesses. And it does speak to the credibility, or at least in the eyes of the jury, that this went so quickly, Brian, that they, they were able to get to that decision so fast. One of the reasons he did testify, Brian, was to really get up there and speak for himself and try to convince the jury that he was truthful, that he did not have criminal intent. And obviously the jury decided otherwise. But we'll send it back to you, Brian. Uh, I know I know Mackenzie Mack doesn't have the IFB in. That's the fancy word for the earpiece. Yeah. Can you ask her one quick question for me? Oh, because really? I was reading, because in the book, sure. Bankman Freed is known for these, like, and I know, Kate, you spent the whole day with him, that he's known for these kind of grump, grunting, like, yup, yup. Like and apparently, you know, he spoke like that or responded to email. And, and I would love to know, with these serious questions, under questioning, was he responding with things like, yup, and okay? Because apparently he was. Yeah, and so I'll, I'll send the question to Mac as well. That was a, a title of the chapter, one of Michael Lewis's chapters in this book was yep. just, yup. And that was his signature response was, yep. And we were saying internally that you almost need to pronounce it, yep, because he would kind of, depending on the answer, do a, a long yup. So Brian, since Mac doesn't have IFD, was asking about some of his responses in the courtroom he would say, yup, and that was sort of his signature response. Brian's asking your take on kind of his demeanor and then also just that in general, his, his signature yup and kind of how he responded to some of the government guys, questioning. Uh, Kate, I apologize. I, mean, I apologize a, to cut it's, you guys it's a off picture again. Michael Lewis's oh, reporting. Kate, Michael Lewis just, was actually in the... Oh, oh, we're going to go to Jay Clayton. <laughs> we're going to come back to Kate and Mack. It'll give more time to explain the question to McKenzie. How about that? Let's go to former SEC chair Jay Clayton. Joining us on the phone, very tight time window, which is why I had to cut Kate off, not on purpose. Jay, your take on the verdict. Um, look, I think that as, as you've articulated, as we just heard, Kate, this was a very well-tried case, very well-planned case by the prosecution. 
um, you know, good witnesses for the prosecution, uh, an exceptional judge who, who moved a complicated case along. Uh, what, what, what it really means, though, Brian, let, let me just say this, is um, crypto, and crypto is a technology, but if crypto is going to flourish or going to survive or going to be part of our ecosystem, it needs to be part of our regulated ecosystem. That's, that's what this really demonstrates, that you know, offshore, unregulated, it's not going to get the traction. It's not going to have the credibility. And I think that that's just a very important takeaway from this. Will there, <clears throat> I'm all choked up. Will there be real change, Jay? Or is, I mean, this is a one-off thing. FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, obviously the four who pled guilty got to decide their future as well. But from a crypto regulation perspective, will this do anything? Will this change anything? Well, I, I, I think what the crypto community, let's, let's not talk about the regulators. Let's talk about the community. I think the crypto community should take from this. If they're going to be successful, they need to come into the regulated environment. Uh, people are not going to uh, participate in organizations that are headquartered in far-flung jurisdictions where you have no rights. And let's also remember that, that the fraud here at the end of the day was not a crypto fraud. This was a garden variety fraud. This was taking customer money and doing something else with it, making a bet with it. And when the bet went south, the customers lost. I know this is not exactly your wheelhouse, Jay, on, on the security side. This is more the political side. But uh, there is a pending campaign finance trial. And one thing that we learned from the, from the book was not only do we knew that he had donations to, to Washington, but the magnitude of the donations, the fact that he knew he was trying to hide, hide the movement of money. He went through, routed it through his through his brother. You heard Kate say maybe have routed some through his mother as well. Do we need to do a little more digging on the political donation side? Because we talk a lot about threats to democracy. And if people are trying to buy elections with stolen money, that seems to me a pretty big deal. Well, I'm not an expert, but as a citizen, I sure do hope we get to the bottom of this and that that kind of, you know, hiding of contributions and the like should not go unchecked. Yeah. And it's um, obviously it's not something probably either party because Bankman Freed gave more money to Democrats, but he met with Republicans. I just referenced the Mitch McConnell thing. I, I don't think this should be red or blue. Anything we're talking about green or whatever color uh, Bitcoin may be. Jay, uh, again, do you have an opinion on on what should happen to the four uh, co-conspirators who, you know, Ryan, Ryan Salem, Nishad Singh, Caroline Ellison and Gary Wong, who all pled guilty and, and turned on Bankman Freed and, and turn state's witnesses, should they serve jail time? Well, that's, look, that's, you know, that's, that's a tough one, but uh, they, they should get credit for their cooperation, whether they serve jail time or not. Um, you know, we will see. Um, I expect that, I expect that there will be some detention here um, for most, if not all of them. Um, but if you wanted me to handicap it, I would say it'd be pretty limited. Okay, maybe pretty limited. That, that could be some good news for, for those four who are obviously very nervous tonight about their future. Jay Clayton, really appreciate you joining us. Uh, Sam Bankman, Freed, guilty in all seven counts. Bring in our colleague, Eamon Javers. Eamon Javers covers sort of this amazing intersection of, of cybersecurity, investigative reporting, criminal behavior. So this is right in your wheelhouse, Eamon. Your reaction to not only the verdict, but how fast the jury came to their conclusion. 
Yeah, this was astonishing. Clearly a jury, Brian, uh, that felt that they knew what they wanted to do here and didn't take them very long to do it. Uh, One quick news item. I just texted John Ray, who is the current uh, CEO of FTX, who's managing it through the bankruptcy progress uh, process. I asked him if he has any reaction to this. No reaction from him yet tonight, but we'll update you as soon as we have that. Uh, Look, I think there's a lot to reflect on tonight, Brian, as you've been doing throughout this hour. And I think uh, when you look at the history of cryptocurrency, it's going to go in this first 14 year period from 2009 up until the pandemic explosion of valuation of Bitcoin through to SBF's fraud and now his conviction here tonight. That's going to be the first chapter of cryptocurrency in the history books. And the question is, where do we go from here. And I think that is a really unknown story right now because the crypto community uh, is going to have to answer a question of what is crypto for? Is it just a speculative asset class where you're just speculating based on the existence of the asset itself backed by sort of nothing other than the the potential of other buyers? Or are there going to be business uses for cryptocurrency, for the blockchain, for distributed ledger, all these technologies that have been built into this product now, are mm-hmm. we going to find business license, you know, real reasons to use it? Because right now, crypto is a is a, a solution in search of a problem, right? I mean, there it doesn't do anything better than anything else, right? It doesn't do anything better than electronic wire transfers or uh, you know money in cash. It's not as anonymous as people thought it might have been. It's not as seamless as people thought it might have been, and it's not as immune to fraud as people thought it might have yeah. been. Uh, and the fact that there's not government regulation is not the panacea that a lot of its early advocates thought it was. So the question is, what is crypto good for now, and how will the crypto community build an ecosystem from here well, going forward, Brian? So I would I say this, to Amen. Look, look at there. You know, Eamon, it's hard to say because we're getting older, but guess what? Crypto is not old. Bitcoin is not old or not not new. Bitcoin's been around now for the better part of 15. It's got a lot more attention last few years, but Bitcoin really kind of gained popularity. in 2009. Yeah, 2009. And, of course, you've got, um, you know, the the Silk Road and the true story. That kind of is how Bitcoin transacted. You know, one thing, again, when you're you're reading Lewis's book or look at this history, you realize that because there's not a lot of U.S. regulation, you got a Bankman Freed who's who's going to Singapore, he's going to Hong Kong, or he's going to the Bahamas. And <clears throat> excuse me, I just wonder, um, Eamon, if, if the U.S. had been a little quicker on the regulation, maybe things like an FTX would have been a lot harder to pull off. Yeah, that's certainly possible. And of course, we'll never know the answer to that. But there is this history. When you look back there, there is this sort of theme of larceny in the heart of crypto going back to the earliest days because the Silk Road, which was largely a drug dealing website, was the first place where you could transact crypto for anything of value at all. And most of what it was was drug dealing. People were buying shrooms on there. They were buying guns on there. Uh, We just did a documentary here on CNBC, uh, which to plug it is available now on YouTube, uh, about one of the earliest contributors to the code of Bitcoin, uh, who later, so he was a developer, what they call an OG in, in crypto slang, who later became one of the biggest thieves of crypto and stole what became $3 billion worth of crypto from the Silk Road itself, right? So there were these crimes involved in the very earliest days of crypto, and now we see the biggest crime yet in the conviction of Sam Bankman-Fried. The crypto community is going to have to, I think, prove now uh, that they can mature, they can join the regulated financial industry, and they can prove a use case for what this stuff is good for other than speculation, or maybe that's all it is. 
we, we can't even decide, Eamon, in D.C., if it's a security or if it's a commodity. Right. And, and, who, and, there, and that ma- right. matters because who, who would regulate it? Uh, Eamon Jabbers. Yeah, go quickly. Yeah, and speaking of D.C., last, last quick point, Brian. The, the powerful and the prominent flocked to Sam Bankman Free. Oh. They flocked to the Bahamas. They wanted to be by his side. They were drawn in by the money. And there are a lot of people guilty of that uh, in D.C., certainly a lot of people guilty of that, as you've been talking to tonight uh, in the financial world as well. And I think a lot of those people need to reflect on the role they played here as well. Yeah, he would fly across the country. He had dinner with Mitch McConnell, flew back, apparently had a Ritz-Carlton that he never even checked into, but was paid for and then stayed in some other townhouse Eamon Javers, thank you very much. All right, for more on this, we're bringing by, we're joined now by Mark Letty. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York who prosecuted Bernie Madoff. You see, uh, Mark, welcome. Do you see correlation between Bankman-Fried and Madoff? Well, I, I see this, and I've seen it from the beginning, not so much as a crypto case, but as uh, a plain vanilla securities fraud, white-collar fraud case, just as uh, Jay Clayton said a few minutes ago, um, this happened to involve uh, the crypto industry, but it really was promises made to investors and promises broken. And that's a classic securities fraud case, a classic uh, white collar fraud case. Uh, and in that way, it's parallel. Yeah. Uh, if I just talk, speak for a minute about the, the need for regulation, I'm not an expert on that. And, and sure, uh, a new industry needs regulation. But I just point out that, you know, the securities industry is one of the most heavily uh, regulated uh, industries we have in the United States since 1934. Um, And so for the 75 years or so that it it was regulated, Bernie Madoff was violating the securities laws for 40 or 50 of them. So even in the most heavily regulated, uh, closely watched uh, industry with regulators coming in and doing audits, somebody who is uh, set on violating the rules and on defrauding investors will do it. Do you believe that Sam Bankman Freed will spend the rest of his life in prison? Uh, look, I, I don't know uh, if, if you really wanted me to bet on it. I would say no. Uh, I don't think so. Um, I expect that he will get a lengthy sentence, probably measured in decades, meaning uh, in the 20, 30-year range. But I don't know enough to really know. And and it's really up to the judge. In this case, unlike a lot of uh, white-collar cases, the judge got a very good look at Sam Bankman-Fried because he took the stand and testified. Um, and that's going to play a role in sentencing, too. So the judge is going to be very well positioned to uh, do justice in this case and make sure that it fits in within I don't, uh, all the other cases. Uh, Mark, I, I don't want to put you on the spot here. Mark, I don't want to put you on the spot because you're not a judge. I, I get that. But are, can you, you have a general idea as to what the sentencing guidelines Maybe if there's some kind of minimums, if they would aggregate all the seven charges or do them separately, just kind of get an idea as to what Sam Bankman-Fried is looking at. So I have not done a, a, a mock guidelines calculation. I would guess the guidelines uh, would be life. And that means in this case where a life sentence is not available, it's the maximum. It's all the sentences added up. That's that's what it was for 
uh, Madoff, which turned out to be 150 years. Um, I, I still view the Madoff case as, as an outlier. Um, maybe this case is an outlier, but it's, it's somewhere less than that. Um, the guidelines, and, but the guidelines are advisory. Um, and, and the judge has a great deal of discretion. And would you? And, and is required to do justice in this case. Would you want to see jail time for the four co-conspirators who did plead guilty and then, you know, turned on Sam Bankman-Fried, even though they admitted guilt and they laid it out and they certainly helped the case, they, they admitted guilt and they were part, admittedly, of this, of this massive fraud. Should they do jail time even though they did assist? I mean, should, should is a hard question for me. Look, the system uh, in the United States, federal prosecutions, uh, particularly in these kind of cases, depend on, prosec- on uh, cooperators. Um, in every conspiracy, um, you need somebody to explain what really happened behind the scenes. All these cases are about intent and knowledge and the documents alone don't get you there. You need people, uh, usually mm-hmm. participants, one or more, to help fill in the blanks. And the system, it varies across the country, but in the Southern District of New York, uh, judges tend to give a lot of uh, credit to cooperators who help prosecutors make cases because yeah. the system depends on it. So very often in major white-collar cases, even where the fraud could be described as massive, you will see cooperators wind up uh, with very light sentences or probation, uh, maybe home detention. Um, You rarely see a cooperator Mm -hmm. uh, who took the stand, testified, was viewed as credible by the jury, where the government writes a letter to the court and talks about just how helpful that person was uh, getting slammed by a judge. Mark that Litt. rarely, rarely happens. Mark Litt, really appreciate you jumping on on uh, short notice. Valuable insight. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. To also, our, our thanks to Mike Novogratz and Anthony Scaramucci for the generosity and their patience. They have been just sitting and, and listening and, and eating their night as well. And guys, we do appreciate it. Mike, I'm going to, if you're somebody who, who who's interested in crypto, meaning, meaning somebody, our viewer or listener out there, and but they got burned, on maybe on Celsius, maybe on FTX, maybe on something else. And they, they're a believer, but they're afraid now. What is your message sort of, of of calming those people who want to invest, but just think, you know what, I don't know what a scam is? Yeah, listen, there, there are credible firms. I think Galaxy, our firm is one. I think Anthony's uh, Skybridge is one, Coinbase. They're credible firms in the U.S. that work in a regulated fashion. Uh, that provides services. Uh, the simplest way to get involved is to buy some Bitcoin, uh, buy some Ethereum. Uh, and yeah, I've always told people on a retail basis, you know, a couple percent of your net worth, uh, you know, a lot of people all want to get rich quick. And so you know, they're putting more money than they should uh, in these bets. And, you know, like, listen, I have a lot of my net worth in crypto, but I didn't start with it. I started you know, with a less than a percent of my net worth, it just happened to grow so much. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of dip your toe in the in the water. But there are plenty of places that 
that are, are credible at this point. And I think most of the bad actors have been washed out of the system, right? To have survived the tsunami of, of bad price and bad news and the cost structure, right? This regular, this, the, yeah. the, 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 the lack of regulation and, and regular regulation by enforcement, which we're seeing from the SEC, uh, we're seeing from the CFDC is wildly costly. And so, uh, it's taken what, a lot to survive. Yeah, I, I Mike, you know, and Anthony, I don't, to Mike's point, I don't know what they're doing in D.C. I know what they're not doing, which is creating crypto regulation. I was on a panel in 2019, I think it was May of 2019, with one of the SEC commissioners, her name is Hester Peirce, and she's been, she'd been more forward thinking about crypto. Literally, we sat on a stage in Blacksburg, Virginia, and did this panel. That was a lot. And then she said, well, we're getting there, we're getting there. And she's been pushing it and getting apparently nowhere uh, that was obviously, you know, we had a pandemic, obviously, but still that was four year, four and a half years ago. What do you think is going on in D.C.? Why, why is this issue so difficult with, you know, especially with, with, with a, a town that when money's involved, they like to move quick? Hold I'm on. sorry. Yeah, I, yeah, no, I'm sorry. I gave you the chance to plug it back in. I saw your foot knocked it out. Probably that happens. <laughs> um, no, I just got to say that, you know, Michael may have a more objective opinion than me. I'm going to editorialize a little bit here. Uh, I think ultimately when uh, President Biden cut the deal to have people like Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg leave the race uh, as he was going into South Carolina to, uh, to combat Bernie Sanders, he cut several deals. One of them was to allow for Elizabeth Warren to have all this control over the financial services industry. And her acolyte, Gary Gensler, uh, they decided that they don't like crypto and they've made it this personal mission. So even though the laws fairly dictate how the administrative process should go, Mr. Gensler's decided to subvert that and act almost like a czar. And this is the reason why he's losing so many court cases. And so we're here now in the final hour where we should get a Bitcoin ETF. And I ultimately think that Mike Novogratz is going to be correct. Once the Sam Bankman Freed stuff dies down, there are people out there like Senator Loomis or Senator Gillibrand from here in New York that will come up with bipartisan legislation that's mm -hmm. commonsensical. And my last point is, Michael and I, I say this for both of us, actually, because I know Mike well, we don't want the mantle of financial services leadership that has been held by the United States for over 100 years to be ceded due to a lack of clarity of, of, of legislation on as important of a technology as this. Yeah, well said. Uh, if I could just steal a few more minutes of your time, Michael and Anthony, sit tight. I want to give our audience, if they're just joining us, we are live, by the way, here on CNBC, catching up on the news that FTX co-founder Sam Bankman-Fried has been found guilty on all seven charges against him. Just to recap those seven charges. We respect the jury's decision. But we're very disappointed in the result. My client, Mr. Bankman-Fried, maintains his innocence, and we're going to continue to vigorously fight the charges against him. Thank you. Have a good night, guys. Good night. Thank you. All right, so there we go. There we, sorry about that, folks. We had to kind of jump in. He just popped in front of the camera. He had issued a statement on paper that basically said the exact same thing. That was the lead attorney. I think one of, I'm sure there were, there were more than one 
as well. Let's go back now to Kate Rooney. Katie, my, uh, that was the lead attorney, obviously not saying much, continue to fight, implying yep. uh, a likely appeal. Uh, I'll let lawyers discuss that, but I'm sure he wasn't the only attorney for Bankman Freed, was he? We had Chris Everdell as well. That was Mark Cohen and his team there walking out as well as a spokesperson, Mark Botnick. But we did get essentially the same statement that they said they're going to keep fighting this. Did not mention appeal, an appeal specifically, but we do expect that to be the next step here. But that's the latest from the defense team. We are also waiting for Sam Beckman-Fried's parents to potentially leave the courtroom as well as the jurors. We don't know if they left through a side entrance or the back here. But really, at this hour, it's almost 9 o'clock at night, this is the only entrance that's open at this point. So anybody leaving the courtroom, we do expect to come out of this entrance here, including potential jurors. They uh, were offered a car home, a car service. So we've got an eye out here. But the latest was that defense team, Brian, and we'll bring you any updates. But there's also, I should say, there's a press gaggle out here. There is a group of journalists that have been covering this day in and day out. And there's a lot of camaraderie among the group here, but uh, they've been here all day inside that courtroom. So a ton of journalists um, among the crowd here, Brian, but we'll bring you any updates as we get them. All right. Yeah. And if you're updating, if you if you know your schedule from here on out, Kate, you let us know, because I'm not sure you know. Kate Rooney outside of... I don't know. I, know. I, I don't think anybody does. We'll see what happens at this point. The appeal could be... The sentencing could be a long time away. All right, let's go back to where we just were, folks. If you are just joining us, thank you, by the way, because we're all here. It's 8.50. We are live covering this news that Sam Bankman-Fried has been found guilty on all seven charges against him. Those seven charges were conspiracy to commit wire fraud on customers, conspiracy to commit wire fraud on lenders, cons- wire fraud on customers, wire fraud on lenders to Alameda Research, conspiracy to commit fraud on customers to buy and sale of derivatives, conspiracy to commit securities fraud on investors in FTX, and conspiracy to commit money laundering. He has been found guilty on all seven of those charges, which, again, we don't know what the sentencing will be, but if you're just going by the sentencing guidelines, there certainly is the potential for as much as 115 years, which, of course, would be a life sentence in federal prison for Mr. Bankman-Fried. All right, let's bring in now a special voice. And that is Emily Parker, Executive Director of Global Content at Coindesk. And if you don't know, I'm going to tell you, on November 2nd of last year, Emily wrote a piece that showed Alameda Research's balance sheet. Uh, uh, actually, it was my colleague, Ian Allison. Yes, I apologize. I was giving you credit. But yeah. thank you. you know what? Shows your Thank you, character, but no, it's my colleague. Not let me. Get, most people just be like, "Yeah, I'll take the credit. I'll take the credit." <laughs> okay, how about this? Your organization, your organization, did a great job. Led it by showing Alameda Research's balance sheet that showed that they held all these tokens, basically self-dealing by FTX. What can you take us back to that point, Emily? What was exactly the the the? Uh, that's kind of that that had that 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 was really the 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 grenade thrown in the room. For FTX, I think that's a fair statement. Yes, absolutely. And it was it's the anniversary to the day, which is amazing, of that article that was written again by my colleague Ian Allison, who revealed some very strange things about the Alameda business, uh, the Alameda balance sheet, namely that it was largely composed of FTT, which was FTX's own token. And what's important about this is that before that article, there was very little suspicion of Sam Bankman Fried or FTX. And that's such a part of the story. Everybody was just taken by him. Everybody thought he was just this, you know, force for good, you know, he was 
was very popular in Washington. He had all these celebrity friends. He just generally was considered to be a positive actor in the cryptocurrency space. So Coindesk publishes this article a year ago. You know, some seeds of doubt are planted. CZ from Binance then tweets saying that he's basically liquidating his FTT. And then it was just a very, very quick down, downward spiral from there. Yeah. And before we knew it, FTX was basically bankrupt. And I'm obviously not going to ask you to reveal your, yours or Allison's sources, but I, and I want to put this into context, what you, what you guys did to be able to get a hold of that balance sheet. Uh, I don't know how you did it, but that was kind of the financial equivalent of the Pentagon Papers in many ways. I mean, somebody obviously leaked it to you, and it makes you just wonder, uh, Emily, that that there were people probably inside of Bankman-Fried's own tent or hut in the Bahamas, if you will, Orchid, I think was the one that he lived in, which is called, who who wanted this exposed. Yeah, I mean, it's um, clearly it, it really was an amazing thing. Um, and it's it's really brought dealt a lot of trouble to the cryptocurrency industry. What's been interesting is that I actually spent some time in the courthouse um, listening to this trial, watching this trial. And the Coindesk article came up again and again, you know, kind of as the, the spark that lit the fire. And, you know, because there were questions asked to, um, for example, Caroline Ellison, what her reaction was. So clearly, you know, this this is widely acknowledges to be, you know, what started this whole thing. Where do you think this goes from here, Emily? How do you think this affects crypto? Uh, net, like you heard Anthony and Mike talk about earlier, you think it's a net, ultimately a net positive. Just clean it out. Flush the bad actors. I think it could be a net positive. Look, FTX had such a dramatic effect on just the world and also specifically on the United States. Because remember, Sam Bankman-Fried, again, he was considered a force for good. He gave a lot of political donations. He was in, in Washington. And I think there was just a sense of dismay and betrayal when this all went down. And I think it really cast a shadow over Washington. I'm not saying that Washington was particularly friendly to cryptocurrency before, but I think after this, it became even more unfriendly. So the question is, what is the lesson that we take from this, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure people, you know, if people just see the headlines, they'll think like, oh, yeah, I knew it. You know, cryptocurrency is a scam. Another guy goes to jail. But I think actually the correct um, lesson from this is that Sam Bankman-Fried actually desperately wanted to be in the United States. This was not a United States exchange. He desperately wanted to be in the United States. He desperately wanted to be regulated in the United States. And, you know, one could argue that had he been regulated in the United States, yeah. maybe this wouldn't have happened, right? And the United States just does not have federal regulation to prevent this kind of thing. I, Emily Parker will let you go, but I literally made that exact point to my colleague Eamon Javers. Uh, amazing. Uh, Emily, thank you very much. All right, folks, we got about three minutes left here in our live coverage. Bring it back in, Kate, Anthony, and Mike. And with huge thanks to Anthony and Mike for uh, just sticking around. Michael, uh, first to you, and again, we are, we got about three minutes left. Do you agree that if we had better regulation three or four years ago, that maybe here in the United States, that maybe FTX never would have been allowed to occur? You know, it's, it, it's hard to know the counterfactual. Like, you know, Madoff occurred with lots of regulation. You know, when, when someone is really smart and wants to perpetuate a fraud, uh, sometimes it's hard to find out. And so you just wouldn't know. I do think, uh, you know, an auditor would have helped, right? Like, you know, the, the, the we knew there was a link between Alameda and, 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 and the CFTC knew and the SEC knew, and yet they were still thinking about approving, uh, you know, a, a special, uh, you know, regulatory lane for, for FDX. I mean, Sam had a charisma that's hard to explain that allowed him to pull this off. And so 
I think everyone's skepticism is 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 up now amongst counterparties. In the same way, after Archipelago's uh, blew up a lot of the private banks, you know, try to try to get get a swap line with the private bank. It's much harder. Uh, it'll take a while for people to put their guard down. Um, yeah, I do think we need regulation. I think it's coming. Let's hope we've been waiting for a while. Anthony, sort of final thoughts on on this. It's not over yet. The appeal, obviously, they're, they're going to they said basically told us they're, they're going to appeal. But what, what's the takeaway from this? Oh, you know, it, it's over. OK, just want to be clear to you guys, like at an appeal like that, there has to be a massive procedural or administrative foul, a judge's error to overturn an appeal like that. So in my mind, it is over. And I and I'd like to go forward and just remind people that there are good, honest, ethical people in this industry and that these, this wonderful blockchain is an amazing delayering mechanism for the society. And it's going to unleash way intense economic innovation and economic efficiency going forward. And, uh, and we're going to get there without Sam now. He'll be in jail for many, many years. Yeah, and it's going to be a, a, a run here. Kate Rooney, we'll go back to you. Uh, great coverage by you and the CNBC team. I know Don Gale, who's, who doesn't get a lot of attention. She's not on camera. She has been in the courtroom the entire time. Uh, was, there one, was there one moment that stuck out to you or her or Mac or anybody that just sort of was one of the, obviously today with the mom, uh, as you might imagine, some mother breaking down? Emotional moment. I would say his testimony was shocking. The fact that he got on the stand hearing from him directly. And then you've got to say his top three lieutenants testifying, especially Caroline Ellison, crying on the stand at certain points, giving a heartfelt testimony, talking about what it was like in the Bahamas a year ago. And you have to think, this company went bankrupt almost exactly a year ago, Brian. So the velocity at which this company grew into a $32 billion conglomerate to going bankrupt to now Sam Bankman-Fried ending up in prison. This was all within the span of about three or four years. So I just can't emphasize enough how quickly all of this happened. And sentencing, we're going to get March 28th. And then we will eventually get that campaign finance trial as well. The government will decide in February if they're going to go through with that. Yeah. But fascinating. Let, let, let's hope because we need some. Cla- we need some. We need wild, some. We yeah. need some light shed on the political side. Um, guys, really appreciate it. Uh, Michael Novogratz, Galaxy Digital, Anthony Scaramucci, Skybridge. Uh, appreciate it, Michael, especially because uh, we kind of kind of roped you into a, an extra hour of coverage. But with our with our great thanks, don't say we never gave you any time on CNBC. Kate Rooney, (laughs) thank you as well, folks. Thank you for sticking with us on our live coverage. CNBC will pick it up tomorrow morning on Worldwide Exchange with Frank Holland, 5 a.m. Eastern. Have a great night. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.